Hello, and welcome to the Shakespeare and Company podcast with me, Adam Biles. If you enjoy this conversation, there are a few different ways you can support us. You can buy a book from our online store, shakespeareandcompany.com, including the title discussed in this episode, a link to which you'll find in the show notes. There, you'll also find our year of reading subscription, as well as Shakespeare and Company totes, apparel, mugs and other gifts, all shipped from Paris to wherever you are in the world. You can also become a friend of Shakespeare and Company, a programme we set up to get the bookshop through this difficult year. Membership gets you access to exclusively produced content throughout 2021, as well as other treats depending on the tier you choose. Contributors so far include Molly Crabapple, Aishan Hutchinson, Olivia Lang, Deborah Levy, Katika Nair, Clemence Poesy, Natalie Portman and George Saunders. You can find out more on friendsofshakespeareandcompany.com. Finally, you can rate this podcast wherever you listen. And if you have time, leave a review. It can really help spread the word. I'll be back at the end. Until then, thank you for listening and enjoy the Shakespeare and Company podcast. Good evening, everybody. Welcome to Shakespeare and Company. It has been 18 months since I've been able to say that. And it feels really good to be able to do so again. And not, not just because we're dipping our toe back into events again, but also because we're doing so with two of our favourite authors in front of an audience of dear friends. One of the things that most attracts me to a writer is the experience of entering into communion with a mind, a way of thinking, a means of expression so utterly unlike my own. Our guests tonight, Yakuta Alikovasovich and Katie Kitamura, are two such writers, and their latest novels, Night As It Falls and Intimacies, are two such books. I couldn't be more delighted that it's with these authors and these books that we're taking our first tentative steps back towards something like normality. In very simple terms... Night as it falls is a love story. Although, as I'm sure you all know, love itself is very rarely simple. In the case of Amelia and Paul, the lovers of the novel's heart, it proves to be a many-tentacled beast that reaches out from the couple at its core to pull in interrogations of identity, memory, language, family, class, history and security. As the title suggests, the atmosphere of Night as it falls is twilight, fugue-like which Yakuta captures in a perfectly pitched, often confounding, always compelling voice. In addition to Night As It Falls, she's the author of three novels, including Cor Volatile, which won the Prix Goncourt in 2008 for Best First Novel. She's translated works by Ben Lerner, David Foster Wallace and Anna Burns into French. She lives in Paris and writes a regular column for the daily newspaper Liberation. Night As It Falls is one of the strangest, most unsettling, most moving books I've read in some time. And I'm honoured to have the opportunity to discuss it with, y- with Yakuta Alikovazovich tonight. Please join me in welcoming her to Shakespeare and Company. Merci, Adam. Thank you so much. Thanks. Um, I guess any discussion of Night as It Falls has to start with um, Amelia and Paul, um, both separately and as a couple. And in fact, we meet them almost as a couple in fact we get we get to know them as they get to know each other and yet they are two characters who are so very finely drawn uh amelia we get you know she has an incredibly detailed backstory which we learn as the novel goes on paul it's we learn maybe slightly less precise detail about his life Mm -hmm. but he's clearly sort of very fleshed out and very real uh to us as readers and to you as a writer so where i'd like to begin is with your first encounters, I guess, as a writer with Amelia and Paul, was it meeting them together 
what did you meet one of them first and sort of build up their life around them or was it in some other some other way yeah, that's interesting that you know i have to think a little because the book came out in 2017 in france mm -hmm. so um i've i had the book when i had them meet mm -hmm. i had both characters separately um i had paul at the at the desk at the at the hotel where he's a he's a night watcher um super early on but i guess i didn't know i had a book then mm -hmm. i just had this guy watching women um on on monitors at night um then i had amelia amelia you know the genesis of the character is a bit more complex in a way or at least to me because um i outsourced autobiographical material mm -hmm. Uh, into this character who became a truly fictional character um, when I was done with her. But, you know, I started writing little pieces about my relationship to the ex-Yugoslavia where my parents are from. They came to Paris in the early 1970s, so I was born and raised here. Um, yet I have a very strong, specific relationship with the country and the language and, of course, the war because the, the country broke up in the 1990s. Um, and was torn apart by civil war. So Amelia started as, um, you know, sort of um, a tentative autobiography of me, li both living and not living a mm -hmm. war. I experienced it here. Um, we had a, members of my family come over. Others stayed in Sarajevo during the, the siege. Others still went to other places, Scandinavia, the United States. Um, etc. And for the longest time, I had no idea I had a relationship to that, really. It was someone else's story. And I claimed it as my own when I realized that, in a way, it had shaped my relationship to the world. I was living it, mm. a world that mostly, you know, hardly remembered that war. So there you had Amelia. But then they met, and that's one mm. of those wonderful things that happen when you write. You don't know, it's suddenly it's sort of one story collapsed into the other and there was the novel. Yeah. And their stories collapsed into each other because they fell in love. As I said, it's a love story. But like, um, it's a very, well, I don't know if it's a very particular love in, or more perhaps all loves are very particular um, you know, or unique. You know, they're, they're particular in their own ways, I guess. Um, because there's a moment where you describe Paul and Amelia as rivals and that's definitely something which does seem to sort of uh, infuse at least the sort of the the early days of their relationship. Yeah, they're, but then they meet, they're extremely young when they meet. Mm -hmm. They meet at 18 and um, the only thing perhaps that makes their love story specific in a way is that it's a, it's a love that's not over when they think it's over. Mm -hmm. And so you sort of follow them as um, life brings them back together or makes them collide mm -hmm. Um again and yeah they're rivals they go to school together mm -hmm. they're rivals he's jealous of her he's a bit daunted um and a bit jealous of her because she represents everything he doesn't have mm -hmm. and she she also has he at first he thinks it's wealth and you know and good looks and the uh, and uh, a nice family in paris something that he doesn't have uh, and access, access to knowledge, access to, you know, whatever intellectual resources he didn't have growing up. And then what I think the novel shows is that 
what he's truly, I don't know if jealous is the word, but envious about, is that she has a detailed backstory. Mm. Um, that she has, you know, she has a personal, it's it's more of a myth than a story because mm-hmm. she's has this um, absent, overbearing, but absent mother figure that I'm sure, sure we'll discuss mm-hmm. at some point. But she has she has a detailed backstory where he has nothing or very little. And you know, and the more you follow Paul, I love Paul. He's um he's he feels very close to my heart still. Mm-hmm. Um you realize that his story is a very common one here in France. Um his father came from abroad. The country of origin is never specified. Mm-hmm. And I wondered about that um for the longest time. I want you know, I have a very specific idea regarding the the country of origin. But then I decided not to mention it, not to name it, because Paul himself has a very hazy notion of what life his father had Hmm. before he came to France, before he changed his name and called his, you know, only son Paul, sort of as a cloak of invisibility, Hmm. you'd think, you know, as a way to try and protect him from whatever evil comes from being singled out as a foreigner, as a foreign origin. Of course, there's a lot of myself um, in this character as well. I mentioned my very obvious biographical relationship to Amelia, but there's a lot of Paul. I mean, it's, Mm -hmm. you know, it's silly when a a novelist says that, but it's nonetheless true, I think. (laughs) Um, There's a a lot of me in that character and that the the love Paul's, Paul's father had for him, has for him, you know, took the shape of no knowledge, no mm-hmm. memories, nothing. A collapse of transmission of memory, thinking, you know, this will protect my son. And it does in a way, and mm-hmm. in another, it doesn't. Yeah. That's one thing I think you do. You talk about the sort of that being at the heart of their, of the, of Paul's envy uh, for Amelia mm-hmm. is this, this, this lack of a story. And it's, it seems in a way to be connected to, yeah, to, to social class, like the, dif- the difference mm-hmm. between. Uh, their background, the difference between their wealth. Um, it's, al- it's almost like the, the yeah, Paul is not sort of afforded this story because mm. I guess the lower down the social hierarchy you come, the more your, your history is likely to be erased by, uh, by, by these societal events. Of course, of course, and that's very true um, here in France, but I think in other countries as well. Sure, yeah. Some people are allowed or allow themselves to have... Um, a rich cosmopolitan history in which duress is sort of magnified and mythified after a generation or two and others who cannot afford that. Yes. Mm-hmm. And afford is a very good term for this. Mm-hmm. And I think the the thing that sort of um, allows them to come together in a sense is the, the physical space where they, they encounter each other. So there are sort of two realms where their relationship develops. Mm-hmm. So they are both students at the same university and take the same class with a particular teacher who we'll certainly come on to talk about in a moment. Um, but also, you mentioned Paul is sort of a night watchman in a hotel, and Amelia lives in that hotel. Um, and this is not a particularly uh, you know, massively luxurious hotel. I mean, I, um, for, I sort of pictured it, I, you, you say in the notes at the end that it's an entirely fictional mm-hmm. chain. In my mind, it's sort of Sofitel kind of... Uh, Sort of chain, but yeah. quite expensive was my sort of my, my feeling about yeah. it. But it also seems to be something about the hotel as a space, in a way. This kind of this sort of anonymous, kind of characterless 
um, I don't want to exactly say sort of liminal space, but that kind of allows these, these two people from two vastly different backgrounds and two vastly different classes for their lives to overlap. Yeah, it's a wonderful place for people who are not comfortable with being themselves, mm-hmm. I guess. I realized at one point, I realized that I felt very much at home in such hotels. Mm-hmm. And then I sort of wondered what the problem was with me, really. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, so this, the, the situation is um, sort of a, an upstairs-downstairs situation mm-hmm. for modern times, contemporary times. Uh, she lives there. It's not particularly glamorous, as you mentioned. It's just, it's, um, it's a very strange place place for people with a very strange craving for neutrality mm-hmm. and anonymity um, and that's how they meet but they could also not meet because mm-hmm. Paul keeps you know hiding from her shunning her sort of I guess ashamed that he's working there and they're going to the same uh, university and then they they meet and there's something their minds I'd say there's an erotic dimension between them, of course, but their minds are shaped the same way. Mm-hmm. And he sort of drinks her stories in and it's sort of, he probably at that point realizes he craved a personal history, mm-hmm. a personal background or backstory. Um, and he drinks hers in as she talks. And that's, you know, that's one of the great strengths of first love mm-hmm. and literature which pretty much share the same side effects. <laughs> um, you empathize completely. Mm-hmm. You, when you're drawn in, you're drawn in completely, and the other the other person's story becomes part of your story. Yeah, you say their minds are shaped in the same way. I guess is is it? No, but that's the thing. They they're not exactly sort of parallel minds, but almost like it's almost like one is the negative of the other, mm-hmm. and they sort of they fit together. So yeah, Amelia has the story, Paul craves the story and there's this kind of I guess this kind of meshing of you know I'm not sure it's a very healthy relationship they have Mm -hmm. but um, it certainly is a compelling one Yeah. yeah. (laughs) (laughs) now you mentioned the um, the the absent uh, mother um, for for Amelia um, Nadia and one connection to this mother is um, Alders uh, the teacher Mm -hmm. that um, takes a class at both Paul and uh, and Amelia um, are taking at the university, and she, in a way, seems to give a sort of a. Uh, she seems to be the kind of the philosophical frame, in a way, to to a lot of the novel. She seems to kind of uh, allow you to sort of explore certain mm-hmm. ideas, perhaps more explicitly than uh, than, than Paul or Amelia. Well, the thing is, um, Albers has very strange and um, interesting ideas about the world, and she's sort of, um, she's part urbanist, part philosopher, and she's she's a sort of um, seer of the world of tomorrow, what they call the the cities of tomorrow. And what she sees is a completely balkanized world. And it was very interesting for me to have them both, Paul and Amelia, you know, hear about everything that was going to happen to them and to the world mm-hmm. they live in. And then progressively, because the, the novel covers, I think, some 30 years, mm-hmm. have them experience it, experience it physically and, you know, have this foreknowledge about the, the world that we actually live mm-hmm. in, the, the world of pandemics and surveillance cam- cameras, um, have seep into their most intimate moments and relationships mm-hmm. to the point that it becomes um, 
almost unrecognizable. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure that experiencing something 20 years later, you know, whatever, Paul being very worried about his daughter not mm-hmm. being back home, I'm not sure that they're fully aware that, you know, they knew that, but they knew it in a very abstract way. Mm-hmm. And now it's become physical knowledge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just to unpack Alba's ideas mm-hmm. a little bit. So she's sort of a, um, I have the description here, it's a sort of an, an urbanist, a, an anthropologist, what is the exact... This is trouble when you're used to doing podcasts. You end up with pages and pages of notes. Um, now, one moment. Yeah, I'm not going to find it now. Oh, well. I think in uh, one of the drafts, maybe not in the yeah. in the last one, but she had um, she had PhDs in economics. Yeah, yeah. is that, you is got that still she, in the book? She'd authored theses <laughs> in history and law and urbanism. Well, okay, economics and, are out. And specifically, <laughs> <laughs> and specifically on the topic of night. Yeah. And this is, um, as I said in the introduction, there's a sort of a, a very kind of a, a sort of a twilight, sort of somber atmosphere to the whole novel. And in fact, uh, it, was, it wasn't something I, I actually reflected on until I'd finished reading it and I didn't actually go back and check. But a part of me is like wondering... If in fact almost all of the novel took place in a kind of darkness yeah. or sort of semi-lit uh, time um, of day, at one point the sun directly shines onto Paul and Amelia, uh, and they simply cannot not have sex. Right? <laughs> <laughs> that's, I think that's the only moment the sun really shines through. <laughs> yeah. But there's this thing, isn't there, in, in Albus's work about sort of the um, the effect that I guess night has on the urban environment mm-hmm. in a way. This is the moment where it's sort of describing as sort of extending the the space and the and the layers of a yeah. city. It expands a city, it changes um, the uses of some places. Mm-hmm. Some places, you know, some places that are very familiar um, during the day become, you know, dodgy or or feisty at night. Mm-hmm. Um, that kind of thing she had in mind, I guess. And Look at me talking about my characters in the third, <laughs> third person. Okay, um, um, but then I was interested in night as the as maybe the last free space we have in cities. Um, the one that for a while at the end of the twentieth century, the beginning of the twenty first century, um, sort of evaded common rule of sensibility of practical. Ability is that is that a word? No, it's sure. not. What, yeah. <laughs> what do you mean? Um, um, sort of like usefulness. Yeah, usefulness. Or, yeah. Yes, um, and you know this kind of Shakespearean night mm-hmm. of joy and and which which became something else. I think mm-hmm. um, in the past twenty years, which became a highly surveilled. Um, mm time and place um, which became even in you know cities such as Paris uh, nightlife has been drained away from the city mm-hmm. um, I don't know if it's coming back at one point I hope so but um, and the city is empty out uh-huh. and all that's left is something that's you know bleakly Dangerous, bleakly void, bleakly surveilled all mm-hmm. the time. Yeah, all yeah, the yeah. time, and mapped out by surveillance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's interesting because there's this sort of sense of um, 
night as a sort of uh, a, a sort of uh, temporal space of opportunity, mm-hmm. I guess. But also, you know, there's a sort of a primal fear of the dark as well. And I think that seems to be a tension which exists mm. at the heart of your novel, actually, between kind of fear and sort of um, opportunity and sort of uh, potential for, for expansion. Yeah, is it, uh, I think it's coming back to me now. I think Albert says, um, you know, we build cities to protect ourselves from right. um, night and its dangers. And then we ended up becoming dangerous mm-hmm. and night became a sort of heaven. Um, heaven, 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 the heaven. Yeah. A haven. Haven, mm-hmm. yes, that mm. one. Um, <laughs> a sort of haven. And then we lost that too. Mm-hmm. And now there's nothing but surveillance screens. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh. And of course, you know, we said earlier that Paul was a um, a night watchman, and in fact, this oh. kind of this concept of surveillance um, continues throughout the book. It's mm. a thread. So Paul, as as his as his life goes on, becomes a kind of a, a salesman, an entrepreneur of sort of surveillance and uh, security systems. Yeah, I think he's truly a man of his time because he clearly has a. Um, a scope of courage mm-hmm. <laughs> and he loves watching he loves watching people he loves watching places he loves watching them more than he loves being part mm-hmm. of the uh, of the scene and then something that was you know just a job just something he did you know at 18 just to earn some money became his purpose in a way mm-hmm. and I think that makes him a little scary at uh-huh. least to me but yeah. It's funny because you used the word surveillance a few times. And the, one, the word that I wrote in my notes actually was um, security. Yeah. And, and I think there was something about that concept of security, which it's sort of it's many layered and can be interpreted in different ways. So, of course, mm-hmm. there is the sort of the surveillance side of mm-hmm. this concept of security, but also a sense of sort of safety and sort of personal security and it seems it's sort of particularly in the case of Paul that these two are very very connected of course and that, uh, at least in the novel the world that we they and we now live in you know sort of comes from a mistranslation really so mm-hmm. it's all a tragic mistake mm-hmm. um, Albert said something so someone asked her you know what the 21st century will be like and she says everyone will be pardon my French, dans la sécurité, um, which is translated as in safety, mm-hmm. everyone will be safe. Whereas what she meant truly was everyone will be in the business of mm-hmm. security. Mm-hmm. Everyone will have a stake in it, um, which is what happens. Yeah. Um, and, you know, even on a domestic scale, you know, Paul keeps spying on his teenage daughter. <laughs> and, you know, he just keeps inventing. That's really his art, is mm-hmm. how to track someone who doesn't want to be tracked. Uh-huh. Yeah, which might be a good moment uh, to hear an extract from from the book. Um, oui. Now, this is... Um, and je, Kuta says that with, sort of, with, with pleasure because she has asked <laughs> me to read the extract, um, <laughs> which is something which is highly irregular. And normally I would be loath to do and uh, to inflict my voice upon you even more than uh, I already have done. But um, since uh, Yakuta asked and since we're among friends, um, I said I would... Um, Merci beaucoup. Thank would, you so it's, much. It's, it's, it's a great pleasure. It's, it's, it's an honour, honestly. Um, so uh, I'm just wondering, I don't think particularly we have... There's much context to give here. So, uh, Louise, is t- so Paul's daughter is yeah. twelve. Uh, by this point, um, he's raising her uh, alone, 
Um, and uh, yeah, I think we've talked about Albus, she's mentioned, I think, but otherwise, I think, uh, I think it's relatively self-explanatory. So, so here we go. And then she turned 12, and he could have sworn he saw the unmistakable strap of a bra suddenly disappearing in a drawer. Suddenly, she shut her notebooks when he arrived, tilted away her phone screen when he got close. A boy came over one day, a pale thing, half a head shorter than her, whom she peered at through her lashes adoringly. What? This wimp? This wilted creature who looks like he's never seen any sunlight, Paul thought. Seriously? His ears are see-through, and that's just peach fuzz there. And his temples, so thin and blue that you could just squeeze them and push in his skull, like cardboard. That's him? That's the thing my daughter, my only daughter, with her powerful, indefatigable heart, can only look at with lowered eyelashes? And he watched them, helplessly, cloistering themselves, not in her room, he would never have allowed that, but in the room he'd once thought his father would have moved into, the sitting room. And Louise shut the door so he had no way to be sure that they were just sitting. A brown curl hung over her face, strategically placed, Paul could have sworn. He who, suddenly a stranger in his own house, found himself prowling the hallway, his adjoining office. It's all a nightmare, he thought. I'm not going to listen at the door, he told himself. I'm not going to listen through the wall. He imagined himself holding the end of a stethoscope up to the plaster, or worse, an ordinary drinking glass. He'd press his ear against to amplify the sounds. That washed-out kid? He's got to be asthmatic, he thought. He's got to be unable to do anything. Just getting an erection would kill him. Love was a matter of optics, unless it was a matter of worry or fear. In any case, the strangest images kept cropping up. Paul had never thought he had so much imagination. Jealous of a white blonde boy, just a kid, and yes, circling like a hawk. All the same, I'm not going to be one of those men obsessed with their daughter's virginity. He thought about calling Albers, instead wondering what she would have done in his place. He stepped into the sitting room that was suddenly no longer for just anyone to use, with a plate of cookies in his left hand and the right one primed to pull the pipsqueak away from his daughter's perfect body, and two small heads blindly turned towards him, swaying under the weight of their virtual reality headsets. They were sitting on the couch a full three feet away from each other, too far away for their hands to touch, held vice-like in those machines. Paul was terrified by how such mechanical additions to a human body could hobble its user, Though, of course, he knew that inside that apparently inert shell was another world, far vaster than any he could dream up. He himself used it sometimes for violent games that he hid from Louise, games in which he broke necks with his bare hands, games in which he showed the enemy no mercy and in which the enemy showed him no mercy, and in which the blood spouting from a head wound tinged everything with a reddish haze. And when he imagined himself alone on a couch in the middle of the night, a non-existent weapon in his fist, a non-existent knife between his teeth, jolting in shock and excitement, he felt ashamed. But not nearly as much as in this moment, one hand holding the snacks and the other ready to strike, facing two pre-adolescents sitting at a noticeable distance from each other, their eyes covered, swaying under the weight of their artificial visions, looking at him without seeing him, unless, of course, the machines had an independent perception of him. Who knew whether those circuits were carrying thoughts of their own, unbeknownst to the children they encased? Who knew, in fact, who was playing with who? Oh, sorry, Paul said. He beat a hasty retreat, shamefacedly took refuge in the kitchen, and then started pacing back and forth. He was clinging too much to his fear, or his fear was clinging too much to him, and soon it, would, soon it took hold again, that vicious spiral of thought. But who knows what's going on down there? Who knows what's going on in that space that can't really be said to exist? but also can't really be said not to exist. 
What if she's stark naked in a bathtub and he is as well and massive and his erect penis reaching her lips? Who knows if that's how they have sex these days? And alarmed, what if she's chosen to be a redhead in that virtual space? Merci beaucoup. Thank you so much. Bravo. My pleasure. Bravo. I like that passage because there's so much going on in there. Um, are you going to read a little for us? I don't know. Do you want me to read? A little in French would be... Okay, I'll do... Same same passage or or another? Whatever you think best. I'll just read the next paragraph for you. Elle eut 14 ans et fit une fugue, qui n'était pas vraiment une fugue, mais un malentendu. Et contre toute attente, Paul la retrouva dans la ville du grand-père. Mais enfin, Louise, ça va pas de pas prévenir Louise, bras nus, assise à un arrêt de bus, mangeait un triangle de pizza qui paraissait plus large que son visage et qui sans doute l'était. Au moins avait-elle un livre à la main, ce qui arrivait rarement. « Oh, ça va, » dit-elle la bouche pleine, de bonne, d'excellente humeur. « Je suis venue voir si par hasard je croisais nos perruches. » Je crois qu'elle se cache. Et Paul se demanda si, dans les deux ans qui le séparaient de la promesse qu'il s'était faite, elle comprendrait suffisamment de choses sur le monde, sur le possible et l'impossible, c'est-à-dire sur la violence et sur la cruauté. Thank you. There's, there's just so much to, to unpack in those, the, those two extracts, actually. And so, and so much, it seems almost sort of like a nexus mm. for, for the novel that so many of the, the, the themes come into contact. Um, one thing um, that it makes me think of, the sort of the, the virtual space that uh, his daughter and her friend are inhabiting, this, this novel seems to be very much about the sort of the construction, destruction and reconstruction Of, of spaces and the kind of, I guess, the, the traces that they, that they leave behind. Yeah, absolutely, yes. Um, the, the first place uh, that's destroyed in the book um, is Sarajevo, the city of Sarajevo, um, which was under siege uh, for, for several years, which was some parts of it at least were completely destroyed and then rebuilt. Um, Sarajevo is the city Amelia goes to um, the first time she leaves Paul. But it's not the only space that's um, destroyed, that's disrupted. The other space that's um, completely ransacked is Amelia's mind, of course. Um, and, you know, she, her mind being a metaphor for war-torn places for the effect, the long-lasting and unpredictable effect a conflict can have um, 10, 20, 30 years on, on a generation that hasn't lived it, uh, that hasn't experienced it directly, and how it still shapes or unshapes the way you look at things, the way you relate to the world. Um, and something can only happen in literature, I think. It's sort of Amelia keeps wondering if the evil she sees is in the world or in her eye, and it seems to go from one to the other and sort of communicate from one to the other, uh, and that's the that's the darkest part probably of the of the novel is the undoing of a woman, um, but then there are other places, other symbolic places that are built, uh, created, invented, um, virtual spaces. Um, like the, the one in the in the passage you so beautifully read. Um, and utopic places, because Louise and the wimp, uh, 
grow up and become become the teenagers we see today become you know the teenagers who demonstrate the teenagers who always invent new ways of you know of of evading cameras evading uh, facial recognition um they really become engaged in building a, a space that's not safe for them but good for them and those things are not the same thing and there, there seems also this sort of sense of um, uh, you, you talk about the sort of the effect of things twenty or thirty years ago mm. have on today. And when you were talking then about like uh, what the teenagers grow up into, it almost feels like a series of bridges in a way from from one generation to the next. So they sort of they can they can construct almost with one hand as what's being mm-hmm. what they're constructing on is being pulled out from under them by things that they're. Uh, they're unaware of things that they don't. Of they, course, they haven't and the novel is aware with. of that, and so the readers mm-hmm. are aware of that, but the characters are not. Mm-hmm. They just, you know, they all of them have, as probably do we, have the illusion that they're living a very, you know, um, unique life, a very yeah. specific life with entanglement. Uh, but but still, and and then the novel is the space in which in um destroyed or half-destroyed world. Uh, relationships are created, recreated through time and space. Mm-hmm. And through language as well. And, and through language. I think that's the sort of where, where I'd like to um, conclude our discussion tonight. And I think because I th- also think it's a subject which will uh, bridge between uh, our two books tonight, this, this concept of language mm-hmm. and this concept of sort of moving between mm-hmm. Uh, different languages and different cultures, and I, I mentioned in the introduction that you're um, you, you've done work as a translator as well, and I can only imagine the sort of the, the process must have been quite strange, you know, being translated mm. into a language that you translate from. Um, but did you find your sort of your your not just your experience as a translator, but also just your your existence between languages? really sort of fed into the novel as you were writing it? Mm, yeah, I have... Um, I've always had a strange relationship to, to languages. I was raised bilingual um, in French and Bosnian. Um, and then uh, in the mid-90s, I was... Probably the term is acting out. So I was, I was, I was sent, I was sent to to the United States to stay for a while with a family friend who was living there, at the time, who, whom, um, to some extent, Albus is is modeled after, and and I've, I've, I've I don't know if I fell in love with English, but I clearly saw it as um, a way out, mm-hmm. probably from my very um, dual childhood and and I decided to learn English the way you I always say I learned English the way you learn how to drive um, but then the truth is I learned English the way you learn how to steal a car probably like you know <laughs> <laughs> hot wiring language and, and that helps yes um, and the thing with language is also that I have um, complete faith in it and I'm a poet's daughter and my mother is a or was a poet. Um, she renounced poetry. Uh, and Nadia Der Amelia's mother is um, also a poet. And my mother inflicted a symbolic death as an artist on herself by renouncing her art. Um, Nadia Der suffers a very real, you know, and, 
and and commonplace kind of death, um, just by losing her life. Um, but still, I inherited the the crazy and crazily optimistic belief that language can change the world, can it can shape it, it can change it, and that it should always try and do that. And I'm also aware that you know it's a uh, it's very quichotesque, um, isn't it? And it's probably doomed to fail, but at least we should try and do that. And one of the ways of trying is by not only by stating things, but by trying to make them felt. Felt um, literature, poetry, literature, try to convey experience. The experience that Night as It Falls conveys is disorientation, so deep that you have forgotten where it comes from. But that, I think, sums up the way many of us relate to this world that we're familiar with, yet that feels very uncanny. Um, so, yes, I do believe in language. I do believe, you know, clearly. As to translation itself, yeah, it made me probably even more obsessive than I was. <laughs> I think that idea of a belief in language is a perfect um, point on which to to conclude the discussion, although I should also say that when you said you learn English like learning to drive, my thir- first thought was what with a kind of aggressive patronising instructor, but I'm glad to sort of <laughs> maybe the, <laughs> your experience was, was quite different to it mine. It was a joy, right? <laughs> yeah, Kuta, thank you thank so, you so, so much. much for joining uh, us tonight. Thank you, thank you all for, you know, being here in person. It's, it's, it's mind-blowing. <laughs> for us to please give it up for you. Nice to you have been listening to the Shakespeare and Company podcast with me, Adam Biles. Links to the books discussed in this episode are available in the show notes, alongside information about how to become a friend of Shakespeare and Company. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please consider rating it wherever you listen. The intro and outro music is Mr. Ginger by the brilliant Alex Fryman, available on his album Play It Gentle. We'll be back next week. Until then, take care, stay safe, and thanks again for listening.